The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The issue that started to come out, probably in the campaign, but certainly in the transition, was the fact that it sure looked like a lot of Trump's questions and pushback weren't that. It wasn't weighing the relative evidence. It wasn't trying to figure out if an alternative explanation had more support in the intelligence. Jim Clapper came right out and said it. He said that he thought the challenge with Trump was that he was fact-free, that evidence, in his words, doesn't cut it with him. That's a different kind of challenge. Uh, That's not a customer who's engaging the analysts and making sure that they've supported their argument with good sources and good argumentation. That's somebody who who doesn't care what the facts are and just disagrees with the conclusion, so he's going to dismiss the evidence. I think that's where a lot of the trouble came from. I'm Shane Harris, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, December 1st, 2021. The CIA has opened a window into former President Donald Trump's always interesting and frequently contentious relationship with the intelligence community. A newly published history confirms a lot of what we already knew about Trump's preferences, like that he didn't actually read his daily top-secret briefing, but it also shows Trump as privately more appreciative of career intelligence professionals than his public broadsides against their deep state bosses might suggest. I sat down with Lawfare's own David Priest, the man who wrote the book about the president's daily brief, to chew over a new chapter in the Getting to Know the President series by John L. Helgerson, a retired CIA officer and former inspector general. The understated title, Donald J. Trump, A Unique Challenge, gives you a hint that, as with all things Trump, his relationship to the intelligence community was anything but business as usual. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 1st, 2021, Trump and his intelligence briefings with David Priest. David, there come certain times when the veil of secrecy that normally shrouds the inner workings of the intelligence community, and particularly the intel community's interactions with the president, gets lifted a bit. Uh, That has happened here in this most interesting document we're going to talk about today. Just to set the scene for us, what is this chapter, this story, this essay, how should we think of it that we are looking at today? Yeah, this new material is from a chapter that is in a revised edition of a book called Getting to Know the President, Intelligence Briefings of Presidential Candidates by John Helgerson. Now, this is a book that is published by the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence, kind of an in-house 
research and historical think tank, if you will. And this book was originally written 25 years ago now, and it was the only thing of its kind, which is a book that was able to access still classified CIA memos and materials about briefings of presidential candidates to inform the public about a topic that had been pretty much neglected and not much known about up to that point. And that was back in in the mid-90s. And what's happened is periodically since then, the author, John Helgerson, has updated the book with new material based on subsequent presidencies and subsequent campaigns. So the last one came out a few years ago talking about the briefings of presidential candidates in the elections of 2008 and 2012. And then this chapter drops quietly on the CIA website a few weeks ago and updates us to include a whole lot of information about the election of 2016 and also a bit of a window into the Trump administration itself. And I like that it quietly drops on the CIA's website, right? They don't send out a push alert like we would at the Washington Post. No, they just sort of wait for people to find it. It's a bit annoying because for intel briefing nerds like me, it's it's not the holy grail that that puts it in a slightly different context, but it's pretty close to that because when I was researching and writing my book on the history of the PDB, this was a great source because John had had gone and interviewed a lot of people, including former presidents, but he, again, had access to these still classified documents that didn't always have footnotes and references, so it wasn't clear where it came from, but it's not like researchers could get to them anyway. But he was able to characterize things having to do with the internal thinking in the CIA about how to brief presidential candidates, the kinds of materials that were taken to brief them. And that that was just gold because it wasn't available anywhere else. And I found it to be a great resource. And I'm a little bit jealous that he gets to keep updating it. I'm guessing that they didn't want to publicize it because they just didn't want to draw attention to the fact that this largely scholarly resource was out there because it could be misinterpreted as somehow being political because it mentions presidential candidates, even though it's historical. I think that's misguided, but sure enough, the public interest in this clearly shows that people aren't interested in it necessarily because of what it tells us about the process of intelligence briefings, but because of what it tells us about the man Donald Trump. Exactly. And it is an historical document, but I must say, um, having read it, it's written so that any you know lay person could understand it. And it's written descriptively. It's got some pretty colorful quotes in it, which we'll get to. One important note, Shane, before we go on is I have seen some references to this as a CIA history or as the CIA story. Right. And it is it is definitely not that. In fact, it has a very clear disclaimer. Every edition of the book has had a disclaimer stating that all statements of fact, opinion, or analysis in this work are those of the author. They do not necessarily reflect official positions or views of the Central Intelligence Agency or any other U.S. government entity, past or present. Now, that that is true. John Helgerson, who is a former CIA deputy director for intelligence and inspector general and and many other things, he he writes it as an individual, but he is writing it at the behest of this Center for the Study of Intelligence. He is 
obviously getting a blessing from the CIA to put this out there and have it on the CIA website. So no, it is not an official US government record, but it is about as reliable as one can get without calling it a US government record of what occurred. And he quotes a number of people on the record in it as well, including, yep. and we're going to get to him more in the discussion, Ted Gistaro, who was sure. President Trump's briefer. Uh, and just as a quick way of reminding folks too, the president gets an intelligence briefing every day, the PDB, as you alluded to, the the book on which you wrote the book. But that's not the only interaction the president has. So just quickly for our readers to situate us too in the, in the kind of environment in which the president is receiving intelligence, what are the other ways he customarily gets it other than the daily interaction and the reading, or in Trump's case, maybe not reading, of the yeah. written material? Yeah, as much as I don't like to admit it, being the guy who wrote a book fetishizing the president's daily brief and talking all about that daily document and how important it is. It is far from the only way that presidents get intelligence. So presidents, at least since the 1960s, have had the White House Situation Room, which is staffed 24-7 by people from the national security bureaucracies. And they have raw intelligence feeds and they can get information to the president or more often through the national security advisor to the president whenever they want or whenever the president wants. And some presidents, Lyndon Johnson most famously, have sometimes wandered down to the situation room and hung out there to look at the incoming information. You also have other senior officials, and there are lots of them, who are around the president who want to bring them information and insight. And that can be the national security advisor himself or herself. That can be a deputy that can be one of the senior directors in the National Security Council staff who are closer to the White House than most of the agencies and departments. But it can also be the cabinet-level officials, the sub-cabinet-level officials who have access to the president directly or indirectly. Information can be conveyed to the president in that way over secure phones. It can be conveyed throughout the day. It can be conveyed by in-person meetings, all of which can exist outside of the president's daily briefing process. That just happens to be the one that for decade after decade has been the the main focal point for getting the information and insight from the intelligence community to the commander in chief each day. Yeah. And, and actually what I found interesting too is that, uh, and I say this only somewhat facetiously, this president, any president can of course get intelligence, not intelligence, but information from the press. And the chapter spends some time, which we'll get into when we talk about the, when Trump becomes president, talking about his use of Twitter, both to make proclamations, but also to consume information, which I think to some degree makes him a very uh, uh, unique customer here, uh, which I think is kind of how Helgerson frames him. So let's dig into what he unearths in in this chapter. Let's start with during the campaign itself. And, and tell mm -hmm. us, kind of set the scene for us here, because President Obama had had a notably very positive experience in his view with the handover from President Bush. President George W. Bush had told his staff, you know, I want you to give President Obama everything, make this seamless. You know, I want this to go completely smoothly. And President Obama was very grateful for that. So how does he then turn around and tell his intelligence officials to prepare for the transition to Trump? And what are some of the things that they do that are notable? Absolutely. Uh, Obama clearly was picking up on and building on the tradition whereby most presidents realize 
there's a new guy coming into the job and they may not know how tough it's going to be. Each president, and, and some have said this explicitly, that you know people think they know what it's like to be president, but they don't know what it's like till they're in that chair in the Oval Office, figuratively or literally, making these hard national security choices that have to be elevated to the president because they have such consequences, sometimes life or death consequences. And Obama, just like Bush before him, and just like Clinton before him, and just like you can go back several presidents, they benefited from the transition efforts that used to be tradition, but became enshrined in law, whereby an outgoing administration must set up transition assistance to incoming administrations. Obama, despite disagreeing with many of the things that George W. Bush did in the foreign policy and homeland security realms, was effusive in his praise for the way the Bush administration prepared his people coming into office so that they could start with their, you know, kind of their legs running underneath them instead of getting up and and starting to walk. So when it comes to intelligence, that is usually delegated to the director of national intelligence, at least for the last 15, 20 years or so. And that was in the person of Jim Clapper, the DNI for President Obama. And Clapper took that ball and ran with it. And he decided not only am I going to follow the tradition of providing intelligence briefings during the campaign to the major party candidates, which has been going on since the early 1950s, but he wanted to make sure that he avoided even the appearance of politicization. So he made sure that the briefings were not going to be done by political appointees, that they would be done by career intelligence officers only. And he made sure that the group that was preparing these campaign briefings and later on the transition briefings would not be the same team that was producing the intelligence for the sitting president and for those around the president. Now, they were they had access to the same finished intelligence from the analysts. They they weren't telling different stories, but they were not in any way crossing over so that there could be again the avoidance of even the appearance of politicization. And to help with this, Clapper himself delegated the responsibility for managing this briefing process to his deputy director for intelligence integration, Ted Gustaro. And he gave him complete authority to select the briefing teams, to decide on the briefing topics for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and to handle all of the logistics so that the appointee, that is Clapper himself, would, would not be involved in some of those choices about how to handle the campaigns. And I think this is a really important point to emphasize here because you know the context of the relationship between the intelligence community and President Trump at, you know is is frequently if not predominantly one of mistrust on the part of the president. I mean he mm-hmm. sees enemies in the intelligence community. He sees people like Jim Clapper, the DNI, like John Brennan, the CIA director, like Jim Comey, the FBI director, as people who tried to sabotage his political campaign and to keep him out of the White House. And this becomes, you know, a much more pronounced problem pretty much from the, you know, right before he takes office. But I think that that's worth really emphasizing for people that Helgerson finds here is that the degree to which Clapper went to essentially separate 
the briefing people from the from the the people who work for the president. I mean, it does really kind of, I think, undercut the notion, or at least one leg of the notion anyway, that President Trump had that, you know, the intel community was out to get him when in fact, they, you know, it seems like the DNI was doing everything he could to insulate politics from the briefings, which is frankly what you would expect him to do. Right. And, and there's another flavor of this too. It's a kind of a different face of the same issue, which is the calls that were made in 2016 to stop this tradition of briefing major party presidential candidates because people who didn't like Donald Trump said he clearly is unfit to receive a classified briefing. Not only has he never held a clearance or seen classified information before, which shouldn't be disqualifying, but look at what he says. Look at the way he behaves with secrets, and maybe we shouldn't be giving him access to these briefings. Similarly, there were calls for Hillary Clinton not to get these candidate briefings because of the whole situation about her being, in Jim Comey's words, extremely careless in handling sensitive, highly classified information. Well, what Jim Clapper did is he said that the nominees for president and vice president who receive these briefings during the campaign, they get those briefings because they were nominated by the major parties, not because they have a security clearance or they're perfect people. And he received letters from politicians saying, you need to not brief Hillary Clinton. And he responded, no, I I will not withhold the briefings from any officially nominated eligible candidate from the two parties. And later on, he even said, it is not my call who gets briefed. The American electorate decides. And there's a great moment, too, of color where uh, Hillary Clinton during the campaign is getting one of these briefings and she goes into, I think it's an FBI office or it's a secure facility in White Plains, New York. And as she's approaching the skiff, the security officer sees her and asks her, you didn't bring any electronic devices, did you? Like you didn't bring your phone in. And as you point out, the context of it being that this was someone who had been scrutinized for having a private email server and characterized as somebody who's lax with classified information. And I think that uh, Helgerson, as you write, it like something like tactfully or diplomatically assures the security officer that she remembered to leave the phone at home today. It was a little odd to see John write it up that way in this new chapter because I suspect that out of a out of an abundance of caution that a security officer at every secure facility for these candidate briefings probably tells every candidate oh, sure. and every aide that comes in Hey, make sure you don't bring in your cell phone or back in the old day. Make sure you don't bring in your BlackBerry or make sure you don't bring in your fax machine, whatever it is. And the fact that he only highlights it for Hillary Clinton, uh, it, it read a little bit funny because there wasn't much more in this chapter about Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine. There was, of course, much more about Donald Trump and even Mike Pence. Yeah, it is a bit weird, particularly since, you know, Hillary Clinton, who had been Secretary of State and First Lady for eight years, didn't really need to be told the protocol for working in his skiff. But anyway, it's a nice it's a nice piece of color. The first briefing to Trump happens on August 17th, and Ted Gestar goes in and briefs the uh, briefs him as well as two of his advisors, um, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. They come away feeling pretty impressed, I think, the advisors, right? I mean, it seems like things are getting off to a good footing, good start, and that the DNI team is giving pretty thorough briefings that the campaign team appreciates. It sure seems like this first briefing goes well, and it, it goes well from both sides, according to 
this write-up because the advisors did did say it went well. Trump ended the session with a thumbs up to the intelligence officers, even though he largely listened and only asked a few big picture questions. They covered a lot of topics in that first briefing, but they didn't get through all of the topics that Ted had selected for the team to brief him. So clearly there was some interaction that delayed them and had them going. It wasn't Trump in this case, since they they say he was largely listening this time. It turns out it was Michael Flynn, who, along with Chris Christie, also attended this briefing. And the the new history here says that Flynn actively questioned the briefers and was quite involved on tactical matters and Middle Eastern topics, which extended the time on those topics and meant that they couldn't get through everything they wanted to. So it seems like it was positive from both sides, but it also meant that they had to try to schedule a second briefing to get to the topics that they didn't have time to in, in the first one. Yeah, and I think it's 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 worth noting that too because I think sometimes we have the impression of Trump and the people around him as being dismissive of intelligence and not really interested in it. And obviously, this you know the, the relationship evolves, but here during the campaign, there's a real desire, just particularly on the part of Flynn, to to kind of consume this to get up to speed on things. I should also note, and Helgerson does not uh, impute any feelings uh, by senior intelligence officials <laughs> towards Michael Flynn. I just have to imagine, though, this was at least for some of these people, maybe somewhat of a bizarre experience. Michael Flynn, by that point, had uh, been fired as the Defense Intelligence Agency director, was a kind of a gadfly uh, in a lot of these circles. Michael Hayden, the former CIA director, has publicly said on Twitter that Michael Flynn, in his words, is crazy. I'm just going to just, this is just my comment. I don't, you don't have to react to it if you don't want to, but I have to imagine for some people in that room, it must have been a little bit of bizarro land to be sitting here briefing Michael Flynn, who is the national security advisor to Donald Trump candidate for president. I will not disagree with any of that. What, what I'll do is bring up something that popped into my mind when, when I read that here. And honestly, when it was coming up, at the time, in real time, people knew these briefings were happening and it became the news that night. I remember being called to offer commentary on some mm-hmm. of the stories coming out about Chris Christie and Michael Flynn, you know, arguing during these briefings and Christie almost holding Michael Flynn back. None of that appears in this Helgerson history, but right, it's right, known right. that these briefings were happening. But what I like to do in these cases is I try to look back and say, is there any parallel to this? Is there any insight from history? Has something else like this ever happened? And while he was not a national security advisor designate, it's easy to forget that way back in 1980, you had Jim Schlesinger, who had been briefly the director of central intelligence, running the CIA and the intelligence community in the Nixon administration. And he ended up working as secretary of defense in the Ford administration and he got fired by Jerry Ford, who thought that he was he was brash and irreverent and kind of a pain in the ass uh, in a lot of Oval Office meetings. And Schlesinger turned around and started advising the campaign of Jimmy Carter, basically working against the, the current president who had fired him. He got his reward for it. He, he was nominated to be the first secretary of energy once that department was up and running in the Carter administration. Now, that's a little bit different than the Flynn situation, especially in that Schlesinger was not the national security advisor designate who was in on the transition briefings. And before that was not one of the two people selected in this case 
to sit in on the campaign briefings, but it's not entirely unheard of that there could be somebody in a national security position around a candidate or a president elect who the intelligence officers probably look at and have to avoid shaking their heads and rolling their eyes because they're surprised that that person is in that situation. Yeah. Well, it gives you an insight too into just how much this went by the book. It's not as though anybody said, hell no, we're not briefing that guy. (laughs) Um, So let's move to the transition. So Donald Trump, to the surprise of almost everyone, including I think it's safe to say Donald Trump, is elected president in November of 2016. Mm -hmm. He doesn't take an intelligence briefing until a week after that briefing. And in fact, it seems like the, the the, the initial phase of getting briefings is somewhat complicated by the fact that the campaign, I think, didn't think they were going to win. So it's not clear, you know, how they're going to start taking these briefings. But once they do, it's again, Ted Gestaro, who's in there doing the briefing, and it goes at a pretty healthy clip. There's 14 briefings in the span of 10 weeks. That's pretty good. I mean, in terms of if we mean good in the sense of there being a fairly consistent interaction uh, at a fairly decent volume with the president-elect. What did you make of that? Because I think, again, this sort of, you know, it was was a bit, I will say it was a bit surprising to me to find out that there was that much briefing going on in a transition, which, you know, by many accounts was both unconventional and pretty chaotic. Well, we have to remember the context here, which is is why it is surprising that he had a, I'll say a relatively heavy intelligence briefing load once they began, but I'll caveat that in a moment. But why is that interesting? Well, the context was throughout 2016, there had been instance after instance of Trump apparently attacking the intelligence community. And it appeared that the relationship was going to be certainly difficult if it existed at all. So you had Trump's campaign back in 2016 deriding the intelligence community for its judgments about Russian interference in the 2016 election. You had him personally in the campaign talking about Saddam Hussein's weapon of mass destruction call by the intelligence community being wrong, and therefore we can't trust the intelligence community on Russia. You, of course, had President-elect Trump later on compare U.S. intelligence officers to Nazis. So when you have that kind of a situation and dynamic going, You certainly don't expect from the president's side, in this case, the president-elect's side, you don't expect for it to be a warm, fuzzy, institutionalized relationship. And yet what bleeds through the words in this Helgerson chapter, and honestly in his whole book, is the fact that the intelligence community works assiduously to try to get and keep that access to the president. In theory, that's because it's good for national security. You want the commander-in-chief to be getting objective, timely intelligence briefings. It's also because they like the access. It's nice to be able to be in the room where it happens. Now, in this case, they couldn't take that for granted. It wasn't clear that Trump was going to accept these briefings at all once he was elected as as president-elect. So the fact that there were some two dozen-plus briefings in the 10 weeks of the transition, once he began on November 15th, was indeed a positive step for the potential relationship between the two. But the caveat I mentioned, Shane, is that that is not rare among presidents-elect. More often in in modern presidencies, the presidents-elect have taken intelligence briefings daily or virtually every day. 
And the earlier chapters of Helgerson talk a lot about this with people like George W. Bush and before him, Bill Clinton, and before him, George H.W. Bush. And the frequency with which a president-elect takes these briefings may be a sign of the relationship to come, in which case, yeah, Trump was getting the briefings and they seem like a lot, but he wasn't taking them every single day. So maybe it's no surprise that he didn't become a daily consumer of the PDB once he was actually president. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And, you know, and Helgerson, I think, notably spends quite a bit of time actually in the chapter pointing out all of the weird, and by weird, I mean, uh, unusual for the intelligence community, political currents that are coming to bear on their relationship with the president, including the fact that, as you've noted, he was ridiculing them publicly. He was challenging the intelligence community's assessment that Russia had interfered in the election. It later came to light during the transition that the assessment was that they'd interfered in the election with the hope that Donald Trump would win, that he was their preferred candidate. And then also the matter of the so-called Steele dossier, which is this packet of opposition research uh, that ultimately is briefed to the president-elect. We know this from, from previous reporting. The intel chiefs, largely at the behest of Jim Comey, kind of make the decision that they need to inform President-elect Trump that this dossier alleging all kinds of nefarious and salacious activities by his part and alleging a kind of conspiracy really between his campaign and the Russian government is out there, that the intelligence community has it, they've seen it, the press has it. Ultimately, the news breaks not long after he's briefed about it. If my memory on the chronology goes right, I was working that night uh, and the whole dossier is published. This kind of, it seems to me, is a moment that kind of irrevocably changes the relationship between President Trump and the intelligence community. He really sees their hand in the release of this document. And officials, including, I think, Gestaro and Clapper, according to Helgerson, have to spend some significant time trying to convince the president-elect that, no, the intelligence community didn't create this document. It's not a CIA product. It's not an FBI product. We were simply alerting you to its presence. I, I thought that was really striking to see him, Hel Helgerson, grapple with this and be very honest about the ways in which this just complicated the relationship in, in, in a unique way. It did. It's, it's not clear whether the dynamic would have been any different without it. Right. And I want to make clear something you, you started with there. The fact that there's contention and there's questioning judgments and pressing analysts and briefers on why they believe what they believe, that's actually a net positive. Right. Any intelligence briefer, I certainly, when I was briefing the PDB and, and doing other briefings, I wanted that kind of interaction because number one, it showed the customer, as we always called them, it it showed that the customer cares. They actually want to engage the material. Number two, it tells you they're thinking about it at some level. They're, they're, they're engaging it. And they don't do that if, if it doesn't matter. So it almost validates all the efforts that go into um, collecting mm -hmm. and analyzing and 
presenting the intelligence. So that's not a bad thing. The issue that started to come out probably in the campaign, but certainly in the transition, was the fact that it sure looked like a lot of Trump's questions and pushback weren't that. It wasn't weighing the relative evidence. It wasn't trying to figure out if an alternative explanation had more support in the intelligence. Jim Clapper came right out and said it. He said that he thought the challenge with Trump was that he was fact-free, that evidence, in his words, doesn't cut it with him. That's a different kind of challenge. Uh, That's not a customer who's engaging the analysts and making sure that they've supported their argument with good sources and good argumentation. That's somebody who who doesn't care what the facts are and just disagrees with the conclusion, so he's going to dismiss the evidence. I think that's where a lot of the trouble came from. And there's a bit here, too, one of the more, I thought, colorful and interesting quotes in the whole chapter from Ted Gestaro. Helgerson's writing about Trump's interaction with his briefers, but also during the transition and during the administration, the question of whether or not Trump actually read the PDB or whether he preferred to take the oral briefings. Now, it has been reported by lots of reporters that the president, you know, notably, famously, did not read his daily briefing, um, that he liked the oral briefings. The PDB itself was scaled down. It was made more into bullet points. And there's this great quote from Ted Gestaro about the president's interaction with the PDB, quote, he touched it, but he doesn't really read anything, <laughs> which I just thought was just such a, a fascinating insight. And um, I will say I read between the lines there, maybe a little bit of contempt from the president's former briefer. I won't try to put words in his mouth, but it came across as a little bit, maybe that Gestaro thought this was not the optimal way for the president to do it. But but nevertheless, I mean, he he's describing a president who you know, doesn't have an appetite for, for for reading this document. And we should note, too, it's not as though the president didn't read. I mean, he spent a lot of time reading Twitter. He did spend a lot of time keeping up with what was in the press, I think, principally on television. So it's not to say that he's not a consumer of information. Right. Uh, he's a consumer often, I think, of really bad information. And to Clapper's point, you know, fact-free information much of the time. But, you know, this was a place where, and I found this to be true throughout the chapter, where there's a lot about the president's you know, kind of the distance with which he kept the intel community, his, his his finding a lot of what they had to tell him to some degree irrelevant sometimes. We'd understood a lot of this from press reporting. And I have to just say, as a journalist, it was heartening to see a lot of this kind of confirmed and validated, obviously now, though, with official on the record sourcing, which is uh, a very positive thing. Right. The, the whole dynamic is fascinating. And there's the impression that if a president doesn't read the PDB, if he only has, Ted says, if he touches it, but he doesn't actually look at the words and and take them in, that that is a a failure. And I got to say, I think I think we can go too far down that road. I can envision a scenario because I lived it. I had a frequent customer when when I was working at CIA, whom I would brief a lot, and I was quite confident he could read. There were times when reading was involved. <laughs> But the vast majority of our briefings involved him sitting back with the material in front of him and then looking at me to essentially orally brief it, to talk him through the material. And I got to say, that's okay. If your learning style and the way you process information and the way you're going to be more engaged with the assessments, if your comfort zone is with conversation, forcing yourself to read it 
might not be effective. It's not an efficient use of your of your time. So I'm okay with somebody who chooses not to read it if and only if that person then has a substantive briefing every day to make up for the fact that all of this information, tens of billions of dollars of intelligence collection and analysis go into this book with very finely crafted assessments, arguments that would take hours over specific words to use to convey exactly the right meaning, and more importantly, not convey the wrong meaning. All of that goes to waste if he's not reading it, but at least there could be a daily briefing that would communicate some of the same. Well, the problem here is what comes through the Helgerson material is that a lot of the reporting at the time that you mentioned does seem to be confirmed here that the president did not read the PDB, even if he would touch it, he would not read the PDB. And then the briefings averaged two, maybe three a week at the beginning of the administration. And then in the last year of the administration, they were down to maybe two a week on average before they faded out. Well, in that case, you've got the commander in chief of the United States not getting the benefit of this daily intelligence information and analysis and you know, taking the wheel of foreign policy with, without that assistance, because you don't know if his advisors around him are giving him objective assessments. That's your hope, is they're filling in the gap by doing that, but there's no evidence that that actually was happening on a daily basis. Someone who stands in pretty stark contrast by Helgerson's account to the president in terms of consumption of intelligence and reading of the PDB is the vice president, and before that, vice president-elect, Mike Pence. During the transition, Helgerson says... He took the transition period briefings virtually every weekday, including on the day of his son's wedding. Mm -hmm. This 2016-17 transition was the first time that the outgoing White House had also approved the PDB provision to cabinet-level designees before they were confirmed. So there's already kind of a widening of the of the pipe of who gets it. Right. But it, Pence really comes across as a pretty voracious careful consumer of intelligence who, you know, develops a really like positive personal relationships with his briefers, Helgerson says. I thought that was pretty striking. I mean, that you can see, you know, he doesn't spend a lot of time, Helgerson, trying to just, just say why it is that Mike Pence seemed to frankly take it more seriously than President Trump did. But it was just interesting to me that, you know, and the more that we learn about these two men, particularly during and after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, mm -hmm. you know, a portrait of Mike Pence, who I think it's safe to say is playing a role of, you know, a, a vice president, you know, next person in line of succession that is just much more in line with what we think presidents normally act like. And Shane, much more in line with what previous vice presidents did, but got less attention for. So Trump diverged from the norm. He was outside a standard deviation curve on several elements of intelligence. But Mike Pence is, is right there in the middle. Ever mm -hmm. since Walter Mondale, uh, Jimmy Carter's vice president in particular, vice presidents have been core customers of the president's daily brief, who were involved eventually with daily briefers of their own who engaged the material at least as seriously as the president. And you've, you've got some presidents in this era who engaged the intelligence pretty damn seriously. And yet the vice presidents were spending even more time with it. Now, there's two reasons for that. One of them may have been stronger in Pence's mind than in the minds of other vice presidents before him. We don't know. But one, one of those could be, you know what? this guy is a bit of a wrecking ball and maybe he'll get impeached 
or maybe he'll just resign in disgust at the system. And I have a pretty good chance of becoming president and I want to study up as much as I can before that happens. That's possible that that was in Mike Pence's mind, but you don't even need that to explain it. The other thing to explain it is simply the fact that the vice president doesn't have much to do relative to the president. The vice presidency has no actual official duties other than presiding over the Senate, which most vice presidents don't do except when they have to. So you've got time on your hands to take an hour or a two hour intelligence briefing every morning in a way that other officers uh, in the United States government don't have the, the luxury of doing. So to me, it's not that much of a surprise that Pence did it that way. In fact, it's somewhat encouraging because a lot of reporting from you and others during the four years of the Trump presidency focused on Trump himself and his use of intelligence, but there was very little reporting about other officers' use of intelligence. And this gives us some real insight into how seriously Mike Pence did treat that part of the job. There's something else that Helgerson surfaced that I I believe is news. And I have to say, I found really surprising and troubling. And I'm kind of confused as to why it went down this way. And I want you to tell me what you think. And that is, is that Trump took no briefing until several weeks after his administration had started, no briefing from the CIA on covert action programs. Now, covert action is one of the most important and powerful exclusive authorities that any president has to authorize. When we speak of presidential findings, these are the documents, the orders, if you will, that a president signs that allows the CIA to engage in covert action, which is to say intelligence operations in which the hand of the United States is designed to be concealed and often action programs that are meant to influence the course of events abroad. This is really, this is like the super secret squirrel stuff. This is the big time. This is the black book stuff. And the president doesn't get briefed on it. Pence and Flynn get to hear about the covert action program on, on December 7th. So does the DNI designate Dan Coates and Flynn's incoming deputy KT McFarland did in a later session. What do you make of the fact that the president of the United States incoming is not being briefed on the set of programs that he and he alone has the authority to execute? I was flabbergasted, gobsmacked. You come up with your your colorful yeah. word here. It's kind of effed up. <laughs> Quite surprising. <laughs> Presidents-elect almost always do get a covert action briefing on what the covert action programs are. And it's important to, to nail down what that means. The covert actions being executed by the CIA, or, or in theory, other agencies or departments, but the CIA primarily, those are not the CIA's covert action programs. Those are the president's covert action programs, and it is explicitly so. That means that they are decided by the president. They are signed by the president in a formal finding. They are notified to the congressional committees and executed by the intelligence agency. But they are not the CIA's covert action programs, which means when there's a transition, it is, it is still an ongoing covert action program, but it is no longer, in this case, Barack Obama's covert action program. As soon as inauguration happens, they are Donald Trump's covert action programs. And what this information tells us is that before he took on that responsibility, Donald Trump did not get briefed on what the existing covert action programs were so that he could decide at that moment, would he continue with all of them? Would he alter any of them? Would he cancel any of them? 
but then even after inauguration, that it was weeks before he was briefed fully on all of the CIA covert action programs that they were executing. That's surprising to me because that means for a healthy period of time, there were covert actions going on that were presumed to still be supported by the president, but the president had not been fully briefed on them. Well, hard to say the buck stops here with the president if he doesn't know what the government is doing in his name. To me, the surprise here is is not that Trump perhaps wasn't interested. Although, frankly, I always thought he would be more interested in covert action than some other aspects of intelligence. Right. That surprises me a bit. What surprises the hell out of me is that you didn't have senior intelligence officers, including some of the incoming appointees, like even a Mike Pompeo, who was familiar with intelligence from his time on the House Intel Committee, that you didn't have senior intelligence officers virtually holding the president down and forcing him to listen to a covert action briefing somewhere in there, certainly after inauguration, if not before, to make sure that he got this. That surprises me that they didn't push harder to make sure that he heard this in one way or another. Yeah. And I think it's hard to imagine for me, and I think I probably speak for you on this, that what we're seeing here is evidence of some affirmative decision by President Obama or then DNI Clapper to withhold the covert action briefings from the president. I mean, clearly they were they were giving him and willing to give him literally everything in terms of official secrets. It's just I'm with you. I'm just struck by, you know, even given the fact that, you know, Flynn's a bit of a wild card. Pence has never served at this executive level. You know, KT McFarland was, you know, not really a heavy, you know, somebody you would have thought would have said, hey, wait a second, you know, you need to brief the future commander in chief on this stuff that we're doing, particularly when it comes at a time when, you know, he might want to know what we're doing in China. He might want to know what we're doing with regards to Russia, if anything. And it's kind of surprising to me that given his obsession with what the intel community kind of was in his mind doing to him to try and tie him to Russia, that he wouldn't avail himself of an opportunity to find out everything he could about what the CIA might be up to in that country. And and you can also imagine... At the, at the extreme, Shane, you can imagine the situation of, this sounds almost fictional, but maybe maybe this will be a, a chatter episode if somebody writes this novel, but mm-hmm. you can imagine a covert action program that is active, that it is presumed the president supports, but has not signed off on, and something goes horribly wrong, as sometimes happens with these complicated and difficult programs, that something goes wrong and it does involve lives, perhaps it involves the sovereignty of another country in a way that could lead towards war or a a movement towards war. And the president essentially is, is given a situation that he's unprepared for and has to make an immediate decision on, do we go to war over this or not? Do we actually invest lives to protect this program or not? And he can't make that decision right away because there is a backstory. There is a full briefing that goes into these these findings and renewals. That would have been an absolutely horrible situation of needing an immediate decision and not being able to get one simply because there hadn't been this briefing yet. Okay, so there's 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 a lot of time spent on the you know the before the during the presidency. We've we've talked about a lot of these things. I want to skip ahead though in the time we have left to another thing that I found to be surprising, which is you know he's by the end of the his administration and of his term, Donald Trump is as we've said 
He's taken about two briefings a week. He's not really reading the PDB. DNI keeps producing the PDB every day. Trump has a pretty limited schedule of in-person briefings. He eventually gets a new briefer. That's Beth Sanner. That's been reported as well. His last in-person briefing with the PDB is before the holidays, and he's heading off to Mar-a-Lago. And Trump tells Sanner he'll see her later. He doesn't restart that session. And even after the it's notably after January 6th, there's no real interaction between the intelligence community and the president. Helgerson doesn't really offer up much of an explanation as to why things just sort of stopped. But I'm curious what you what you made of that, that in the end, it's almost just like the line just kind of goes dead. Right. There are several factors playing in here, and we don't know which ones have the most influence. One is at the beginning of his administration, you had intelligence leaders who you know, may not have been of the lifelong caliber of uh, Jim Clapper, who had worked 50 years in intelligence, or you know, John Brennan, who had worked decades in intelligence. But Dan Coats as DNI, well, guess what? And Sue Gordon as, as uh, principal deputy DNI, you know, that's a, that's a team that has a lot of intelligence experience between them. Most of that from Sue, but you know, Dan Coates had served in committees where he was familiar with intelligence, served as ambassador where he had received intelligence, and seemed to care objectively about the national security of the United States. They were not Trump personal favorites, and that's why they had the job. Fast forward to the end of the administration, the the acting DNI and then the DNI were Rick Grinnell and John Ratcliffe, who got the jobs primarily because of those latter factors, not because of their extensive experience with intelligence and their adherence to a objective standard for, for intelligence. So you had people around the president who might not have been pushing as much for this process to continue, and perhaps even more importantly, might not have seen the importance of doing so. So maybe they were pushing for it, but they their heart wasn't really in it. It could also be that Trump just figured out he got less value from these over time. And in that, he would not be unique. Uh, many presidents have cut back on their intelligence briefings over time. However, none of them have simply stopped both reading the PDB, if they were doing it in the first place every day, and cut off their briefings. Doing both of those means that for almost a month, within a few days of a month, the commander in chief was not getting the highest level information and analysis available from all classified sources. It wasn't getting to him. Now we hope that there was someone filling the gap. We hope that a strong national security advisor was walking in that office every day and saying, Mr. President, I am going to brief you on the president's daily brief. And with the right person under the right circumstances, delivering it as objectively as possible, maybe that helps fill the gap. Helgerson doesn't explain that. And in some of the previous chapters of the book, when there is a strong national security advisor, like Kissinger for Nixon and Ford, like Brzezinski for Carter, when there is a strong national security advisor, he does write about that dynamic. But that is absent here. Now, we can't read too much into that, but everything else around it suggests that the president probably wasn't getting the high level of intelligence that we expect each commander in chief to have every day. So, David, as a last question here, there is every expectation that Donald Trump will seek the office of the presidency for a second term in 2024. 
imagine that he wins, knowing what we know now about the past four years of his relationship with the intelligence community, how do you imagine the second four years going? That is a difficult question. <laughs> and, it's, and it's difficult because we obviously don't know what's going on inside the mind of, of Donald J. Trump and why it evolved the way it did. But it also does, it does depend so much on the people around him. The women and men of the intelligence community, the the women and men he nominates to positions of of national security importance, and what value they place on this. On the bright side, and I'll call it the bright side because I think it is inherently better for national security decision making to have the benefit of the best intelligence in the world. On, on the bright side, there was something in these briefings that actually Trump liked, that Trump got something from. Because there are a lot of competing demands on any president's time. And yes, this president, it may have been Twitter and watching television, but there are more demands on any president's time than on many other officials in in the government. And yet he chose to still dedicate some time to these intelligence briefings when on day one he could have said, I don't need this. I don't like this. There's a bunch of smarty pants coming in the room pretending they know more than I do when I know more than they do on every country in the world would have been easy to see him turn those off. And yet he didn't until the last month of his presidency. So on the bright side, there may be some value of intelligence that doesn't come through entirely in this new material from John Helgerson, but it would mean that he would still have some relationship with the intelligence community. Of course, it could go the other direction, which is he learned over the course of his term and in that last month that, guess what? I don't really need this. And it's a lot more fun having that extra time to do phone calls, to do Twitter, to watch the news, things like that, in which case it could be a presidency without the kind of intelligence we've come to expect since the Second World War. And that takes us back to a pretty dark place because the global commitments of the United States and the risks of the United States not having a good picture of what's going on overseas, the stakes are quite high now. I didn't ask me, but I'll take a shot at that question. Moderator's privilege. I think that you're going to see if he wins again, that the intelligence leadership, which is not to say the workforce of the intelligence community, which I think will be relatively stable, but the intelligence leadership is going to look very much like it did towards the end of his presidency, where, mm -hmm. you know, gone are the Dan Coates and the Sue Gordons, and they are replaced by not just loyalists, but people who will adhere to the president's you know, falsehoods and his myths and his lies about stolen elections. Stolen elections will be the centerpiece of a campaign, I presume, if he runs. And so I think in some ways he's going to have to, in order to just maintain credibility among a base that will have put him in the White House, he's going to have to have people who are, you know, local elections officials who, you know, tried to seize voting machines suddenly becoming the director of national intelligence. It doesn't strike me that he's going to go back to that 2017 model where you kind of get, you know, not necessarily the most bold-faced of names, but you find reasonable statesmen and women who can do the job. I think we're yeah. talking, you know, like we're going into my pillow guy territory, uh, you know, and, and putting them at the helm of some of these important agencies. And I have to imagine if you're the Ted Gestaros and the Beth Sanders of the world, that's a pretty terrifying prospect. I think you're right on that, but I also have to put out there a plug for the career professionals in the intelligence agencies, because there could have been many, many people, and I'm talking hundreds, thousands, 
who saw that this was a very unique president, as as John Helgerson puts it, and said, I can't work under this administration. I feel like this this is not the way national security is supposed to be run. I don't think intelligence is being valued. I quit. I'm going off to the private sector where I, I can actually you know earn a better living. And you did not see much of that, even with some of the real friction between the president and the intelligence community. By and large, overwhelmingly, you saw national security officials, uh, career officials, stay in their jobs, perhaps put their head down and ignore the noise, perhaps focus on other customers at the assistant secretary and the undersecretary level who receive intelligence. But you you saw career intelligence officers stay and, and do their job for the benefit of national security and the, and the American people. And I think that even if circumstances are tougher, you would still see that that DNA cause that reaction. People find a way to get through the tough times and continue to find ways to make sure that national security is supported through good intelligence, even if they feel the president is an enemy to that process. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you, David Priest. I enjoyed our chatter. I enjoyed our chatter too. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, tell your friends about the podcast, download it for your holiday travel, and don't forget to check out other podcasts in the Lawfare family, including Rational Security and a new podcast you might have heard about called Chatter. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Hamza Shitu is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan, as always, performed our music. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.